This is FBG Jen. And FBG Kristen. And I'm FBG Margot, host and producer. You're listening to the podcast that will help you keep a lid on the junk in the trunk and inspire you to live a happy and confident life. Each episode, we chat with motivational experts and celebs and share our own candid adventures in being healthy. If you're looking for a podcast that's equal parts hilarious and enlightening, well then welcome to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. Want to live that Fit Bottom life that's free of dieting today, tomorrow, and every day of your life? Take the first step by signing up for our free five-day Fit Bottom Reset email course at fitbottomgirls.com forward slash email. A happier and healthier you awaits. Welcome back to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. This is FBG Margot, and on the line today, we have FBG Jen. Hey. <laughs> kind of easy going, Jen, today. And, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and we have FBG Kristen. Hola. <laughs> Anyway, you guys, today we are talking to two amazing women, Amy Stanton and Catherine Connors, and they are the authors of The Feminine Revolution. And Jen, we were just talking off the air. You just featured part of their book on Fit Bottom Girls, correct? Yeah, and it's awesome. The whole premise of their book is like, take all the stuff that you've been told is feminine and not strong and not worth showing in particularly the workplace, but in your life in general. And it's like, no, that's not actually a weak trait. Those are actually really, really, really strong traits. So we'll include the post in the show notes, but it's it's stuff like being um, agreeable or a good girl can actually have some good aspects to it or expressing yourself or using your intuition or being sensitive and maybe even oh my god crying and mothering like these type of um, traits that are we've been told are very feminine um, are actually assets that can help you in your career and in your in your life and make you a really good leader so we'll link out to that it's a really good resource and a really good feel for uh, this book that they wrote which is amazing it's so, they are so smart and, yes. and they take 21 traits that, that are labeled feminine and then say, this is how this is actually very useful and helpful in the workplace. And one of them is about crying. And so I wanted to ask you guys, cause I know, especially when I started in the nineties, like getting out of college, going into the work field, it, and maybe it's just being in New York and it was just the kind of work I did, but it was very much like, you don't cry at work. You don't cry in baseball. You don't cry in the office and you keep your feminine stuff to yourself, you know, your feelings to yourself and that kind of thing, which is, which is very toxic. And it's just not a very healthy way to live much less work. And I just didn't know, did you guys ever kind of experience that when you were starting your careers? Yeah. Cause didn't you feel like that was the worst thing in the world? Like that was like the worst thing you could do at your job Yeah, was cry and break down and then look like you're somehow like unstable. Mm -hmm. Heaven forbid, you know, you had something going on in your personal life or you cared so much about your work that you were crying. It may surprise no one, but yes, I've cried at work. I've cried at work. Well, I, we were talking about this before, but I, I cry with Kristen all the time, but that's okay. We're close friends. <laughs> And we I'm care a lot of anytime. And we care a lot about what we do. And I'm just highly emotional usually. But I mean, yeah, in my quote unquote like other jobs that I've had that have been, you know, in an office with other people, men. Um, yeah, I have cried a number of times. I've cried in big meetings, little meetings. <laughs> um, and it is always super embarrassing. And I feel like the worst part is is that usually the the worst part of, of crying when you're doing it in a situation where you don't want to be doing it is that that usually makes the crying worse oh absolutely then you're because you have the embarrassment Hello. on top of it yeah yeah and yes then, and did you ever do yes. a thing where you, you can't get your breath like yes yeah. yes that's worst like that's that's the one memory I have I was in a meeting of yeah probably six to eight people and I can't remember exactly what I was even crying over but I think it was something work related like it hadn't gone as well and as is I had wanted it to and I got emotional about it and then of course because this is what you do when people cry is you usually go to comfort them but that usually just only makes me cry worse so that compounded plus the embarrassment and yeah I was like <gasps> and then I'm like well I have to excuse myself until I can pull my shit together and then come back you know I was like oh my gosh are you okay da, 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 da. yeah embarrassing but and that's why I do think it is so cool to kind of have these conversations and so many workplaces have changed as 
the distribution of power has shifted and changed and companies are run by, you know, more women or by people that are open to more kind of emotional intelligence and see the benefit of having emotion in their work or the fact that suppression is, you know, not really doing it for anybody. So I don't so, know. Nice. All right. I have a question yeah. because I was not, I was not on this interview with them. Um, and I, I have not been a big crier at the office historically. Um, I, I'm, I cry, but it's about things like sad dog stories or, you know, really like things that are really touching. The other stuff will make me upset or angry or just really, really crabby, but it's, it doesn't tend to go toward crying so much. But in this one particularly toxic office job that I had, it was, it was a bad situation. And I, I had a boss who she did cry a fair amount. It didn't seem to be tied to things that were in my mind worth crying about. They, they were, they seemed to me irrational. Um, and I'm sure that there was more to it than I was seeing, but it really like, it was a, it was a very strange situation because I was, I was pretty young and there were a lot of women there who had been there longer and who, you know, were older and more experienced. And I just remember it being a very hard thing to navigate because, you know, I'm not great uh, always in, in crowds um, with lots of people and navigating all these personalities anyway. And then to have the person who's um, guiding me kind of randomly cry about things, it was, it was weird. So I don't, I guess my question is, is, are there any rules that you think still should be followed? Or is it just a, like, you know, no, like when you're feeling something, it's, it's very okay to feel it. And, you know, we, we need to all move as a culture to, to embrace that more. Or is there, you know, is there a time when maybe you should excuse yourself if you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm going to cry and this isn't the place. I feel like boundaries are good for anything. Yeah. In general. I mean, because I, I can definitely see how if you're particularly your boss or your leader is, you know, kind of always in a, or very often in a state of emotional upset, you know, that would be like, um, like, am I supposed to comfort you or mm -hmm. is everything okay? You know, especially yeah. when you're first entering the workforce and you don't have maybe a good barometer of the business or what's normal. Like one yeah. of the first jobs I had, my my boss got fired. Like I'd been working there for like a month or something and he got fired and I was like, what the freak? And like everything changed and it was, it was scary. And yeah. And, and people that had worked with him for a long time were having all kinds of emotions. And I'm like, oh, I don't even know what's happening. Is this even a safe place? You know, <laughs> like it's just, it's there, there are just so many different things, but I think that the importance and maybe some of the, which um, they get into in this interview is that the, you know, the culture and the environment of where you're working is so important at a broader level. I don't think you want to, you know, you want to work in a place where it results in so much emotion that then like normal breakdowns are a thing, you know, like you want to yeah. be able to have like that work-life balance. So if there is other stuff going on, then yeah, you, you are able to step away and deal with your emotions and feel them so that maybe they're not as likely to just, you know, always come out like, with other people or in other ways that aren't quite as timely, you know, does that make sense? Well, yeah. And also yeah. we, we also talked about in this, in this interview was about intuition and how, you know, having your gut feeling being acknowledged and, and respected, you know, just saying, look, I just have a really bad feeling about this. I can't really, uh, verbalize why, but I just don't think we should do this or that. And sometimes people want to just poo-poo that but then you wind up in a situation like Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes and she had people who who they knew it was bad what they were working on but they were not in a culture in an environment where it was okay to be emotional and say no we can't do this this is not going to work this is you know we need to rethink this and that whole company fell to pieces because of it 
And, yeah. you know, it, it, there were not enough female, funnily enough, run by a woman, but there were not enough female voices and listened to that were sort of like, hey, wait, let's let's take a step back. What are we trying to do here? You know, this is this could be harmful. I was obsessed with that story. So I <laughs> I always want to talk about it anyway. But it's like it's very funny how this was a woman who ran a company, but yeah. very unemotional and very all business. And I think those kind of places that they'll, they'll just eat you alive. Well, I think that's kind of what we've been taught. Like that's like, especially I think our generation was like, well, if you're going to make it and you're going to rise up through the ranks, you, you have, that's the game you have to play. Mm -hmm. Like you have to be tough and you have to be not emotional or whatever. And that's why I think some of this work is so cool. Cause it's like, oh no, wait a minute. There is possibly a better way to do this. Yeah. That would be supportive of everyone, you know, but you can't, you can't have that power unless you're even in that platform, you know, mm -hmm. like you're, you're yeah. even in that spot. Right. Well, you guys are going to really hear a lot of great advice here, and we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode because I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. And you know what else I think? And I don't think any of us cried during it. <laughs> no, no. I kept it I kept it together. I've been very proud of myself. I will say, though, that something we're really proud of, we wanted to shout from the rooftops because we're emotional women, are stickers. Yay! Stickers. We love our stickers. I'm holding them in my hand right now. If you guys would like some Fit Bottom Girls stickers, please send us an email, podcast at fitbottomgirls.com. We will drop them in the mail for you. Follow us on all of the social medias at Fit Bottom Girls. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube. We are everywhere. And if you leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts, we will read it on the air. And you guys, I say, let's get right into our interview today. Let's do it. Reset your mind, body, and soul to be a little bit more fit-bottomed in our free five-day Fit Bottom Reset email course. Sign up at fitbottomgirls.com forward slash email now. Amy Stanton is a longtime marketer and brand builder currently running a marketing and PR agency with a large focus on brands targeted at and built by women. Previously, she was the CMO of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. She is a frequent speaker on the topics of women, sports, branding, and entrepreneurship. Catherine Connors is the president of Women Rising, a Hollywood studio with a mission to create content and experiences that empower women and girls. She is co-founder and former CCO of Maverick, a network for girls and young women, and the former editor-in-chief of Babbel and head of content for Disney's interactive women and family portfolio. Welcome to the show, Amy and Catherine. Thank Hi. you. <laughs> this is FBG Margo, and on the line today, we have FBG Jen. Hello. Welcome to the show. And I just want to say, what let's talk about women and how we choose to communicate and how we express ourselves. So, for example, I'm a big fan of communicating via text and email, and I like using emojis and tons of exclamation points. But... I've been told before some people label that as girly, but I feel like more and more men are learning to do this and communicate with enthusiasm. And so can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where to start? Um, well, first of all, yes, we are big fans of communicating in an enthusiastic way and feel that it's just another example of how women have been labeled or held back in some way because we're too expressive, we're too emotional, we're too enthusiastic. And the emojis and the exclamation points may be an example of it, but it's all part of this broader issue of being perceived as too much. And we are talking about a bigger issue, which is that women are held back in so many ways for being feminine and not allowing our feminine qualities to shine through. And we're saying, it's time to change that. And so the expressiveness and communication and enthusiasm is a perfect example of that. So this is, this is kind of um, the, the germ for your entire um, book, right? Like the whole kind of premise of your new book. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about how that came, the whole project, the whole book, it all came about and came together? Sure. Well, I'll start with that again. And this is Amy speaking. Um, so I'd started thinking about five years ago about the question of whether I had become too tough in my work life and taken on these more masculine qualities in order to quote unquote thrive in a man's world. 
And that could include everything from being direct to being assertive to having to stand up for myself in meetings and on calls and, and feeling like that was really serving me in certain ways, but maybe in some ways preventing me from letting some of my more feminine qualities, my emotionality, my sensitivity and others shine through. And those qualities, my emotionality and my sensitivity, those are huge parts of me. So if I wasn't letting those shine through in work because I felt like they weren't welcome and then potentially not letting them shine through in personal relationships, I started thinking, well, maybe this is why I haven't met Prince Charming and <laughs> a very simple topic, really. Um, and then one thing led to another and I started thinking more broadly about femininity and wondering how it serves us, how we're allowing ourselves to be. And a mutual friend introduced me to Catherine. This was now about four years ago. And that was an amazing first meeting because we just had hours and hours worth of stuff to talk about. She has her own perspective, which I'm sure she will share about why this is such an important topic. And from that point on, we had this open dialogue and literally every single year I would say, I have to write this book this year. And as we can see now, years have passed and early last year, Catherine and I had another breakfast and I said, let's just do this together. And it actually in some ways, well, I think it's far more powerful in that the ideas speak for themselves, real complimentary. We bring complimentary points of view and knowledge and experience, but also, there's something wonderful about two women working together to write a book about femininity because the sisterhood is such a key piece of all of this. So um, the broader topic is really about how instead of looking at femininity and feminine qualities as weaknesses, we're saying these are our superpowers. We should fully embrace these. And for each woman, it would be completely different. But it's an opportunity for each and every one of us to take a closer look at ourselves and say, what does femininity mean to us? How are we using it in service of being our best self and living our best lives? And how are we holding it back? And if so, why are we holding it back? And how do we unleash it to its fullest potential? And Catherine, I would love for you to explain how <laughs> you come to the table, which is amazing. Yeah, it was a it, it was a fateful meeting when um, this you know when when Amy and I were introduced. We're actually introduced by it was a friend of Amy's and at, at the time my boss at the the Walt Disney Company who knew I was leading a charge at the time within the company around establishing um, sort of better practices around um, engagement of women and girls and rebranding princess and a whole host of things. So Jimmy was very aware, you know, that this was a passion, uh, a passion project for me. He also knew that in my deep, dark past, I was an academic, a social scientist, and my field, you know, was a study of women and girls in the history of social thought. So I had spent a lot of time as a scholar considering questions concerning femininity, you know, how it shapes how we understand the private sphere and, you know, how it, you know, balances against masculinity when we think about things of, uh, like political leadership, you know, community building, citizenship, that kind of thing. So at the time for me, there was this intersection of this the this work at Disney you know and you know my past scholarship and then this fateful meeting with Amy who was bringing this very both a you know um, a deeply felt personal perspective to the table but also a host of conversations that she'd already been having with women about their experiences and perspectives you know ar around their own experience of femininity so it was you know I, I keep saying the word fateful because I think you know to Amy's point it, it's both you know, I, I think a very powerful demonstration of, you know, the work of femininity that we were able to come together and collaborate on this, you know, but also because it really was combining, um, you know, these, these very different, you know, approaches to the questions, the personal approach, the professional approach, an academic approach, a consideration of points of view across a spectrum of experiences so that we could really capture, you know, what, what we hoped, you know, what, what we really wanted to be, you know, an opportunity for readers to really ask their own questions about their own experiences and feel like they could find themselves at some points, you know, in the book, wherever that was going to feel most, you know, most resonant for them. So my sister is, is a huge proponent of women's intuition 
and how we need to tap into that more, not only as a part of communication, but as in decision making. And I just was wondering if either one of you could speak to that. I love the intuition chapter for so many reasons, because first of all, intuition, it's easy to sort of brush the idea of intuition aside. And, and people have been doing that for years. And, and even we, with proof of the fact that our intuition is right so much of the time, we tend to sometimes not trust it. Um, so what's interesting about it is when you start to give it its fair shot and you actually pay close attention to when it's serving you and when it's when it's right, which is, again, I'd say most of the time, you start to trust it in a way that allows you to really lean on it in a more productive way, not just, <laughs> oh, sorry. I had a feeling that was going to happen. Bernard really feels strongly about it as well. <laughs> it happens on our show. One of the things that's been interesting about our conversations with intuition is we started realizing how effective it can be even in the workplace. And obviously that doesn't mean someone who is not a proven executive or a leader going into every room and saying, I'm just going to trust my gut on this. But certainly for men or women who have definitely already demonstrated that they are using all the facts at hand and tapping into all the different information quantitatively, using all that and then being able to say, I'm going to go with my gut on this or I trust my intuition on this is a very, very powerful thing. And I actually do with my employees sometimes where they'll come in and ask me a question and I'll say, hey, what does your gut tell you? Because nine times out of 10, they will actually come up with the same answer that I would have, but they need that practice of really leaning on their gut and using it in a way that they can count on. It's it, intuitions in, in, you know, one of my favorites as well, because it's one of the best examples of, you know, a, of the longstanding sort of social and cultural sexism around femininity femininity. I mean, women's ways of knowing, um, left brain thinking, you know, powers of observation, social intelligence, intelligence. I mean, these have, you know, these have taken a back seat to, 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 to what we sometimes think of as more scientific um, or rational forms of knowledge for a very, very long time, in part because of, you know, our, our biases around who is doing and communicating knowing. There's a tremendous amount of really good research, you know, on the kind of intelligence that supports intuition. It's not, you know, we're not simply talking about, you know, something that's woo, although I'm a big convert to woo (laughs) since moving to Los Angeles from New York. You know, that it it is, to Amy's point, you know, that it is based on, you know, very, you know, a powerful exercise of observation, you know, of picking up nuance, of registering, especially social cues, of noting when somebody seems nervous or uncomfortable, that sort of thing. So this thing that we've dismissed, you know, as a sort of as a, as a feminine way of knowing, you know, uh, the, the power of intuition is something that we think, you know, has this powerful opportunity for reclaiming because it is, you know, it, it's absolutely a valuable form of intelligence and one to Amy's point that when it's exercised can really be a very, very powerful asset. I mean, we're using and registering our intuition, you know, all the time. The question is, you know, when are we giving it any credence or any value and where are we making space for it, those of us? that have the opportunities to shape office cultures and teams, that sort of thing of, of making space for somebody to be able to say, you know, I just, you know, I, I can't quite explain why I think this, but, you know, my sense is X, Y, or Z. Usually that sense is coming from powers of observation that, you know, you know, that the person just hasn't quite acknowledged. Again, it's, we've become so accustomed to, you know, masculine um, postures around knowledge that we've just, you know, that this is one very powerful tool that we've sort of pushed aside for millennia. So what's a good way to have those conversations? Like if you're in a meeting and you're like, no, really, my gut is like screaming to do this. Like, how do you communicate that if you are in a culture of that not being received well? You may take that. Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is to is to be unapologetic about it, 
right? That that if you are relying on your intuition, I, I I think the first and most important thing is to is to own it, right? You know, to say I have a bad feeling about this shouldn't be a bad thing, right? Now, understandably, you know, arguably this is an uphill roll um, road, but you know, it. I think that until we're able to get more comfortable with doing that, than saying like you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this idea, or I have a bad feeling about this. You know, I, I think taking ownership over that is an important first step. Now, if you're in an environment where that's just not really going to be received, then I think the next option is to frame it in, you know, in terms that are more aligned with knowledge and observation, right? That, you know, that, that you do have the opportunity to say that I, you know, my, my, my sense is, or sort of, you know, based on following this for a while, I'm, my response is X, Y, or Z. So putting it in terms that are a little bit more palatable is, you know, I think is maybe the safe option, but I, I really do feel strongly. I think both of us would say that taking the step of asserting the power of your sense around things or your feeling around things, um, your observation of things and asserting that or, or speaking to your experience of things um, are very powerful ways of recalibrating, you know, how we, um, you know, how input gets processed in, you know, in a business meeting, for example, or in any kind of collaboration where the default has historically been to go rationalist. So a big struggle that I have in being assertive is also in staying kind in how I communicate is partly because I'm a New Yorker and we're kind of trained like I want it when I want it. And and so, you know, I want to but you want things you want to, of course, do it in a nice way. Do you do you think there is less demonizing these days of women who do want to be known as a good person and that it doesn't make you appear wimpy or pushover when you're trying to do things the nice way? We absolutely think so. And we actually, we have a chapter called be agreeable because this is another perfect example. Again, each of the chapters are a sort of negative stereotype and something that has been a challenge for women historically or perceived challenge because it's been perceived as a weakness and agreeability is a perfect example mm -hmm. of something that women have potentially even judged in each other as a negative thing. Think about how much the workplace has shifted. And that's partially because women are, are not allowing each other to operate in certain ways. So agreeable agreeability is a great example. And, and we're saying sometimes agreeability is the way because it allows us to build bridges and to create connections and, and focus on the important stuff and not necessarily, it doesn't mean be a pushover. And, and that's a really key piece. This is, there's so much nuance in all of this. Anything to an extreme would not be a positive thing. I mean, we have a whole chapter about crying openly, which I'm a personal advocate for, which we can talk about later. But, but I mean, any being too agreeable in a way that you have all these desires and you're not able to actually communicate that or get what you want, that would be a huge problem. But, but the broader, idea of bringing more kindness and agreeability and grace to situations is really, really powerful. And it's something that we can practice each and every single day. And even in small situations where we just feel ourselves feeling, oh, like this is, this conversation is going to be tough, right? How do we go into it with a mindset of how am I going to move this forward in a way, again, I would call it feminine, <clears throat> but bringing grace and kindness and love to this situation that may have some tension built in. And there's absolutely nothing weak about that. In fact, that's the mo most powerful way to move things forward. What could be more powerful than that? I do think you're right that, I mean, we are in a time where there is arguably more openness to this. I mean, we're in a really interesting time in that I think we're seeing culturally both the forces of, you know, for, you know, to, I mean, to use the fashionable term, toxic masculinity, right? You know, it's definitely the era of the asshole, pardon my French. Yep. Um, you know, given our, you know, given the political culture in the United States right now. But what that's done has, I, I think, made everybody, it, it's pulled the monster out from underneath the bed, right? And demonstrated that those postures, and characteristics, those exercises of power are, are just are, are, are not always, never mind desirable, but not always even effective. So you know, I, I think we have, you know, the, the silver lining 
pointing to the particular cultural cloud that we're living under is that I do think, you know, to your point, that, that we are living in a moment where there is more openness to the idea that that agreeability, that niceness, that kindness has an actual value. I think everybody is craving more kindness and more grace right now. And so I, I think that we are in a cultural moment where there is space to say, to, to talk about sensitivity. We're certainly in, in parenting and family conversations. There's a lot more conversation around raising sensitive boys, you know, and encouraging emotionality and letting kids feel their feelings and practice kindness. So I mean, both, both Amy and I, we, we wrote this book fairly quickly because we felt really strongly that we wanted to, you know, we wanted it out in the conversation, you know, in this moment. Um, and I think it's a particularly good one because we are at this, at this crossroads where we can really see what, you know, what the toxically masculine, you know, postures really look like and what the downsides are, you know, and at the same time, see what the opportunities are for kinder, gentler, more, more feminine practices. Okay, so I think you both touched on things that led me to like a million and a half questions, but I think I'm going to narrow it down to this one for both of you, which is there's there's 21 traits that you focus on in your book. I would love to know how you got to that number or possibly narrowed it down, like what that process was like to 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 get it condensed. And then also if you each have a one that you're particularly fond of. Well, Catherine and I laugh about it because we feel like, first of all, there could have been 210 of these, <laughs> not just 21. But it was deaf, and and maybe there those will continue to come out as we talk about it. But, but the truth is, we narrowed in on the twenty one that we felt were distinct and important, and each had a really strong historical connection as well as present day relevance, and that we also really could relate to in ways. Although Catherine and I each had certain chapters that were challenging, and sometimes we'd force ourselves to really focus on those chapters because maybe it meant that those were the ones we needed to personally work on. So I think that the the process of narrowing it down was not an easy one, but it did it did eventually seem like we ended up with the 21 that really were the strongest and would allow us to cover off lots of different bases and really one of the things we say to everyone is for each person this process would be completely radically different because as you're reading this book, there may be certain chapters that which really resonate strongly for you and others which really don't. And and it's funny, even in conversations with women about the book now, you know, sometimes you'll be talking to someone and they'll go, you know what, I'm really, there, we have a chapter on emotionality. It's our first chapter. They'll go, you know, I'm, not, I'm really not an emotional person. And yet they'll find another chapter later in the book and go, well, actually, First of all, I, I really do feel like I need to be more emotional. <laughs> and then also the other chapters sort of shed, shed light on that for them. So it's a really interesting exploration and, and definitely something that's not a let's work through this today and tomorrow we're going to evolve to be this new, more feminine being. <laughs> but it's something that we can all practice in our day to day and might need different tools at different times, which is why we included as many tools as we did. For me personally, the easy one is the crying openly chapter, which is often controversial. And that's exactly why we're talking about it, because clearly there's been a lot of negative press about crying in the workplace in particular, but it actually starts at a much younger age where girls and boys are set, are told not to cry. Don't be a crybaby. And we're, we're given these messages from an early age that not only is crying bad, but that we need to shut down these emotions and hold back in some way and be brave and courageous. And those are better qualities than being, than crying and letting our emotions show. So I come from a family of criers. I've always been a crier and, and because I come from a family of criers, maybe it's more welcome in my family than in most places, but it certainly wasn't welcome in my early career days and working in big ad agencies in New York city. And it's not to say I was hysterically crying all the time, but it's definitely there were moments where I would break down. And sometimes I was out of exhaustion from working too hard. Sometimes it would be because I was emotional about a conversation and wanted a bigger raise than I was getting any number of different examples, but I certainly was not welcome. And, and 
over the years, I did toughen up. And as we talked about in the beginning, that's one of the reasons I felt compelled to do this exploration in the first place, because I felt like maybe the toughening up wasn't all good. And later in my career, I worked for these two very powerful men during while I was running the marketing and communications for New York's Olympic bid. And one of them came from the banking world and one came from politics. And so they were not accustomed to criers. Um, really probably not that accustomed to working with as many women as they were at that time, but really definitely not accustomed to criers. And, uh, and I was better at that point. And see, even the fact that I just said that shows that even I'm still judging it on some level, but I had, I had dialed it back a bit and yet there were times where I would burst into tears and it would be at an extreme point. And I say this all the time. It's not like we woke up that morning and I thought, Oh, I hope I'll burst into tears in my boss's office. I obviously had been pushed to, an extreme point, which is what caused me to feel that I, well, it just caused me to cry and it's okay, you know, and it wasn't the end of the world. And we learned to talk through it and actually be able to communicate about the, what was at the heart of the crying, why I was crying, not necessarily focus on the crying. So many times when we cry, it could be in our personal relationship or in work, we lose sight of what the crying was about in the first place, because we're so focused on how embarrassed we are about the fact that we're crying. So we are basically proponents of if you need to cry, it's okay. And here's some productive ways to use that in a powerful way to your advantage. So how do you use the crying to help you connect more meaningfully with the person on the other side of the table? Again, could be in work, could be in a personal relationship, in a work situation. Be able to say, the reason I'm feeling emotional is because I care so much about this job or because I really wanted to get a promotion today, so let's talk about how I can do that. Or I wasn't expecting this because of X, Y, and Z, but to really just allow yourself to be seen and show the other person where that crying, that emotion is coming from versus it becoming this elephant in the room. So I know Catherine likes the crying too, but she has her own. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, I I am I tend not to be as comfortable with crying. So 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 that was one um that that was one that wasn't as as personal for me. Although I will say that through the process of having Amy and I having written the book that chapter in particular and having talked about that chapter so much that it's it's reframed my point of view a little bit on crying. I've I've worked harder to to in, interrogate my own issues around crying and our, our family recently lost a pet and I actually made a I sort of made a point of giving myself space to to be emotional about it and to actually you know and, and to cry to cry in front of my kids in front of my husband you know to cry openly. Um, in part because, you know, of the work we did in, in really thinking through the values and the benefits, you know, and through establishing this principle for ourselves that, that, that we want every reader to do is to just is, is ask the questions. Like, if, if this doesn't speak to you, why not? Right. Or if you feel like that doesn't describe you, why not? Is it because of, a you know, sort of a authentic disconnect or is it is because of some social conditioning? For me, the, the other one I, I mentioned before that, that I had to wrap my head around a bit more was um, was intuition. I'm a former social scientist. You know, I'm very, you know, and I'll, although I'm also a writer and I think of myself as very creative and romantic and all these things, you know, I, I really, you know, I spent, you know, the, you know, the early period of my adult life just very, very conditioned into a very sort of into a culture that values the right brain and more masculine approaches to knowledge. So, and that, that, that struggle didn't so much happen with the book, but I mean, happened, you know, when, when my family moved to Los Angeles and were much more surrounded by, for lack of a better word, I'll call woo, right? Valuing intuition and going with the flow and that kind of thing. Amy and I, in fact, had conversations around, you know, addressing the question of flow. And I would be like, okay, but what do you mean by that? Right? <laughs> How do we define it? We need to be able to define it, um, you know, in order to write about it. So there were ways in which I was imposing that sort 
sort of, you know, masculine knowledge system, even as we were writing the book. But it was an opportunity for me, you know, and if you read the chapter, you'll see that the anecdote there is mine of, of like a, of really looking at my own experience of intuition and my own relationship to it, you know, and where my points of view have been changed and how I've been changed by allowing, giving myself space to open myself up to the power of intuition and to brace my own powers of intuition and to make them work for ways, you know, wait, make them work for me in ways that are comfortable for me, right? You know, I'm, I'm never not going to be a right-brained person. So for me, you know, wrapping my head and heart around intuition really became in part an exercise of acknowledging the research and the science, you know, and, you know, the very, you know, the very tangible um, evidence there is that that intuition is powerful and it does work and it is rooted, you know, in, in knowledge and observation. So that was, you know, for me, through the process of writing the book, I was able to reorient my own attitudes towards certain um, stereotypes, you know, and postures of femininity. You know, intuition was a big one. As I said, crying was another one. The ones that were easiest for me were, you know, the ones like being agreeable. I'm Canadian, so it comes naturally for me quite <laughs> apart from, quite apart from, you know, being female and being feminine, you know, and the other is being emotional, um, you know, and sensitivity is, you know, Amy will say the same thing. I think we were both described as emotional and sensitive girls, you know, growing up. So those were personally powerful. It's probably why we led with emotionality being emotional, because that was one that was both very, very resonant for both of us. And we felt like it was probably going to be pretty resonant for, for most women. So yeah, you know, as, as Amy said, you know, I think we, we want the reader to have a similar experience to the one we had writing it, which is to say, finding the things that really spark meaningfully for them, you know, and thinking about those and then finding the things that don't and also thinking about those. It's it's so funny you bring that up about like, you know, being at an ad agency in New York and what it was like, you know, 20, 25 years ago, because one of my first jobs was at a big PR agency and a lot of male toxic behavior. And one of the male partners was killed in a subway accident. And it was really interesting to think about it now, how different people reacted. And there was a group, there was one woman who actually yelled at a group of women for crying. And saying, you know, why are you, you know, we, we got, we have work to do, you know, we have to, but it's just, I don't know, it was just interesting how at the time I looked and said, well, how do I behave? Because I was so new to the situation and it was, it's, it's never really left me. I've always thought about it and how, you know, some people openly cried and some people shut the doors and some people went to other people, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's so funny how, you know, human emotion coming into play when you're trying to work. <laughs> right so i i'm sorry so a long question I, I do have a question i really want to know this can you be nice can you be agreeable and still be someone who gets stuff done oh 100 100%, 100%. i mean the whole entire nation of canada would not get anything done if it were <laughs> true um I, you know I, and i only say that happened just right is that there are there are other models you know that there are other ways of thinking about of efficiency and accomplishment and ambition that don't have to be capital D dominant, right? That don't have to be aggressive, that don't have to follow those very, you know, the, those, you know, the, those more extreme models of, you know, of masculine exercises of power, even less extreme ones. It's, you can be nice and still be assertive, right? You know, I have a, a daughter, you know, who just turned 13. And it's been just one of the singular <laughs> in, intentions for me in, you know, in raising a girl has been, you know, raising her to be a good person and a, a person a, a, and a person who can get shit done, right? Who can stand right. up for herself, who can defend herself, who can stand up for other people, right? Um, I actually think that kind people, sensitive people, people that are social aware and attuned to other people around them are actually more effective. And this is part of the point of variety of chapters in our book is that, you know, if you really look at those as assets, as powers, you know, as tools, then you can really begin to see, you know, how effective they can be. We should be apologizing for being sensitive 
or for being nice, right? Being nice doesn't mean being a pushover. Being nice means being attentive to other people around you. We have a chapter on apologizing and being polite. You know, those are ways of acknowledging human connection and the people around us. Um, you know, and arguably, we become more able to influence, you know, more able to inspire and to mobilize and to motivate other people, you know, when we're more attentive to to what their needs are and, and, and what, what their emotions are and what their sensitivities are. So arguably, there's a whole world of effectiveness, you know, of quote unquote getting shit done that can be opened up, you know, if, if we really look at those aspects ourselves, you know, and see them, you know, as the powerful tools that they are. I think that's literally the whole concept of the book. I mean, we're, we're saying this is about redefining what powerful is. And we're, and we're saying, let's redefine it in a way that includes these feminine qualities and, and not because we're, it's about labeling. It's about actually looking more closely at these powers, at, the, at these qualities and saying, actually, I mean, I, I, one of the ones that I think is such an, a nice, simple concept is seductiveness, which historically seductiveness has been perceived as using your wiles for sex or to attract someone from the opposite sex. But really seductiveness can also be literally the most powerful person in the room who happens to just be sitting back, taking it all in and then speaking after he or she has heard what everyone else has to say. And that's, that is a more nuanced seductiveness that is, is powerful. So it's, it's interesting. Like these are really are complex in certain ways that we have never given them the chance to be. And, and that's, what's exciting about it, honestly, because I think Catherine and I would both say that every day is an exploration. I mean, we, this is why we feel like we could write so many more chapters, the more we talk about it, because the reality is we as women have been getting all these messages, conflicting messages, but critical ones. So don't be so controlling. Don't be so agreeable. In my opinion, those two things could literally be at odds with each other. How, how, what are you going to be if you're neither controlling nor agreeable? You have to be something. But actually, instead of a lot of what happens, which is this self-judgment and this self-talk, what if we go, okay, you know what? I am being controlling, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. The reason I'm being controlling is because I am in charge. I'm the boss. I have to be controlling. And it doesn't mean I need to be controlling in a way that's that's mean, but I, I shouldn't be beating myself up for the fact that I have to be a taskmaster right now. So it's it's sort of letting ourselves off the hook for a lot of the stuff and, and letting ourselves be ourselves. And that's <laughs> that's an exciting opportunity. And if, if that means for me, I get to cry when I need to cry. And that I, if someone tells me I'm being too sensitive, instead of beating myself up for going, Oh, I'm just being too sensitive again. I go, okay, what, let's think about that for a second. Was that sensitivity all bad? Maybe in some ways it was powerful. Maybe it made them feel bad, but at that moment or made them angry, but, but maybe there's actually something positive and powerful in there. So we get to kind of look at all this with fresh eyes. And I, I'd say we've already set, we've already experienced some personal changes. As you've heard from Catherine, I I'm having the same experience where I'm putting these things into practice and finding that on a day-to-day -day basis, there really are shifts. It's not perfect, by the way. There are certainly days where I think, oh, how can I handle this particular situation with grace and bring my feminine qualities to the forefront? And then I have that conversation. I'm like, mm, not exactly what I intended, <laughs> but, but it's okay because we're practicing something new. So we think that the, the exciting part is all these changes ahead for us and for everyone around us and um, definitely are hearing some positive shifts in some of the women who've been reading the book. So what more can we ask for? So really just like a lot of things, you know, the change really does begin with us, like each of us. Yeah. It does. Yay. So can you, um, I know Catherine, you've done a lot of work with young, young women, young girls. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the best ways to address this in, in, the younger set, the younger generation. Yeah, I I, I think that um, that that having these conversations with 
girls and young women, and crucially, I think boys and young men, you know, are, are one of the biggest opportunities we have to, you know, to, to, to make a difference to their, you know, to, to their personal growth. And also to, I, I think, you know, creating a kinder, gentler, more caring world, you know, as we discussed before, you know, I think we're in a period of, you know, greater openness to these conversations. And I think a lot of that has to do with this, um, with, with this new generation, you know, that, you know, that is, arguably to some extent sort of more willing or more interested you know in 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 having conversations about how about how multifaceted they can be you know about resisting stereotypes um that said we also live in a culture that is still you know very much defined by pretty long-standing you know cultural tropes and stereotypes around masculinity and femininity you know that that that's that's pretty pervasive i mean i've yeah you know a lot of the marketing around girl power, which is, you know, which is, which is great, you know, super, super important, you know, often sends a message that to be, for a girl to be powerful, she needs to be more like a boy, right? That you'll often see the, the, the you know, in, in a lot of the hashtag, like a girl messaging that it's, it's about throwing, you know, being a pitcher, you know, about being, you know, about, you know, about adopting some of the you know the roles that we've seen men and boys historically take and that's important it's absolutely important that girls have those options open to them you know but we also often inadvertently send the message to girls and to boys that things that are quote-unquote girly are problematic right are bad so I, I think on the one hand there's there's a lot of space and openness to you know to kids and young people today to talk about the power of their sensitivity and their emotionality and kindness and agreeability and being polite right on the one hand on the other, you know, I think we are still very much living in a culture that's that's sending messages. I mean, my experience with Princess at Disney is a whole other sidebar on that, where we do, you know, where we do inadvertently send the message that things that are coded girl are somehow less than, you know, that liking pink or princesses or dolls and that sort of thing is somehow still problematic for girls and women, you know, which has a, you know, arguably a negative impact on girls and women because it, you know, it sends the message that things that are quote-unquote girly are less than and it also has the same impact on you know on boys you know who get the message that you know if they're going to be strong and powerful they need to reject those things as well because they are less than so i would say that it's those two things that it's taking the opportunities that are there to you know to to integrate into parenting or mentoring or whatever relationships anyone has, you know, with a young person, you know, about the power of their emotionality and their sensitivity and their agreeability and all of the various things that we unpack in the book. And it's also about encouraging them to always ask themselves um, when they think of something as less than or something as less powerful, that they really ask why that is, you know, are they resisting or rejecting something because it's coded as feminine? And why is that? that you know is it because of the social conditioning so that they can be so so that they can just be you know smart critics about those social messages you know and push past them where they need to or where they want to I have like a million more questions but <laughs> I, I think we're gonna be running out of time soon I mean Jen do you have anything else do you want to go over oh man I know it's there's so okay, much okay we could be here for hours one one last one Amy yeah. I think you touched on this really briefly um if we can just drill just a touch deeper into it, you mentioned about, because we talked a lot about toxic masculinity, and then you also briefly touched on, um, you know, sometimes it's it's women, it's your female boss, or, you know, that's that's not accepting of the intuition or the crying or, you know, one of those feminine traits. What, I guess, what tips can you get to address that situation? Because it's a little bit different, or is it? I love that you brought that up. Well, first of all, it makes perfect sense, of course, that we all would have modeled ourselves in the workplace after men if we were striving to be leaders, because historically, men were the leaders. So it's in some ways, it's it's made us feel that the more womanly part, the feminine parts of ourselves are not effective in the workplace. Again, this is a whole reevaluation opportunity. I'd say culturally, there's already a lot of people looking at that. And then clearly, that's a big part of what we're talking about in the book. We definitely recognize that, you know, women are almost punishing other women 
for those qualities in some ways, maybe consciously or subconsciously, because they're they're trying to groom them to be more like these male leaders. And and we're saying that's not necessary. You know, this is that that was the that may have been a phase that everyone needed to go through where we all needed to toughen up to prove that we could thrive in a man's world. But did it work? I mean, let's look politically. I think Catherine and I often reference the Hillary Clinton situation. It was a it was a no win situation for her. If she was too tough, she seemed inhuman and not accessible. And if she was emotional, she would have thrown in the category of being another emotional woman. So it's it's so unfortunate because we are all in that same boat until we climb out of the boat. And it's definitely about showing up in a way, again, that feels authentic to each of us, but then also bit by bit helping shift the environment. Because if we make crying welcome in our office, which obviously you can imagine that I do, <laughs> then then that opens the door for others to do the same. And when we ask our employees to trust their gut, then it oper- it creates an opportunity for them to think differently about how they're showing up in the world. So in a way, it's going to take these sort of baby steps and also recognizing that, you know, none of us are perfect. And I, I think in a way we're the most excited for women who are like the woman that told you not to cry when that man died. I mean, that's, that's so sad for everyone around her, but also for her, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really, if anything, someone told her that's how she needed to be as a boss. I think so too learned, you know, so, so we do feel, especially at a time when we can see the negative effects of this, again, toxic masculinity and how that is not working. This is a time where suddenly women can show up in it in a new way that is still powerful, but is authentic and allows us to bring these softer skills to the forefront. And, and I, it's exciting because really at the end of the day, as you talked about earlier, this is something that we each have the ability to shift. This is not something that is going to require a big seismic societal change. We hope it will create that. But we're, we, when we first set out to do this, we looked around and said there's so many important conversations going on for and to and around women. Feminism, female empowerment, equal rights, all of it. And we're, we feel those are super important and are on board with all those conversations. But ultimately, those don't necessarily feel wholeheartedly within our control. But what is within our control is the ability to think about how we're showing up and whether we're bringing our best qualities to the forefront. And um, and I really do hope that it changes the way things are in the office and that, that we as women can take some responsibility for the way we're labeling and holding back other women. And that's that could be in the workplace or it could be judging someone walking down the street for wearing a skirt that's too short and either in the back of our mind or to a friend saying, Oh, she looks like a slut. You know, how are we encouraging women to express their sexuality and their sexual power, which we think is super important if we're using language that's holding them back from that. So where can we find you on, on social media? Both of you, like, where can we find you? Everywhere. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the website for the book is femininerevolution.com. Oh, sorry, it's actually not. The website for the book is femininerevolutionbook.com. And my social is Amy K. Stanton on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And my social is at Her Bad Mother Everywhere. And I have one more question for the both of you, if you can uh, indulge us. Of course. Okay. We ask this of everybody that appears on the show. What was the last song you listened to before you did this podcast interview? (laughs) (laughs) Mine was, um, and I was actually complaining about this minutes before I got on this interview, was uh, Thank You Next, Ariana Grande, because I can't escape it. Um, My daughter was listening to it before school, and it's fixed in my brain as a perpetual earworm. Um, And so (laughs) I was just complaining about how it's still ringing in my ears. You know, after <laughs> after breakfast, I do. I, I, I like it. That was a good song. Like Ariana Grande. 
I love that question so much because actually it makes me think I should have listened to a specific song to really <laughs> pump me up and set the tone. I happen to be in my car and I'm listening to this mix on Spotify, which is today's top hits because I do try to still stay relevant. So I was listening to a song. I had to pull this out. Light on by Maggie Rogers. Oh, very uh, cool. You know that song? No, no. <laughs> Should we? Or actually. <laughs> okay. Had to answer oh. honestly though, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You can't fake the funk on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Rogers. I'm going to look it up. Yep. I mean, I don't, I can't say it good. I just, well, that was what I was listening to. <laughs> right. Like, that was the <laughs> truth. I have had um, a Gloria Stefan in my head since this morning. I just woke up and it was like rhythm of the night. I'm like, what is happening? Like, it's so random, but music. Okay. <laughs> That's one it's that will stick with you all day, I'm sure. Do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. I'll check that out. Thank you both yeah. so much for being on the show. Thank you all. It was fun. So much fun. Love this show? Tell us why in a five-star review on iTunes, and we'll read it on the air. Also, make sure you are a subscriber. If you want to reach out to say hi or have a question about a recent episode, yay, well, feel free to email us at podcast at fitbottomgirls.com. And if this podcast jives perfectly with your brand, consider sponsoring the show. Get more info by emailing advertising at fitbottomgirls.com. Find all kinds of Fit Bottom goodness online and on social media at Fit Bottom Girls, Fit Bottom Mamas, Fit Bottom Eats, and Fit Bottom Zen. And if books and movies are your thing, check out the other podcast I co-host called Book vs. Movie, which you can find anywhere where you search for podcasts. Thanks for listening.